Yeah, I think the way the environmental problem has been communicated to the masses has really created that apathy. And it's a part of the way the news media likes to communicate with us. They like to give us a quick scare and then move on to the next thing. They don't like to do long-form investigation or any constructive suggestions. They just like to say, oh, there's something terrible going on. It's screwed up. Now you need to watch us again tomorrow to find out more. Hi, this is Joshua Spodek, and this is Leadership in the Environment. You're not the only one who cares about your impact enough to act. You're part of a global community undeterred by people saying, if others don't change first, then what I do doesn't matter, and other excuses. We've read the science. We can do this. This show is about personal responsibility, acting, and improving your life by your values. As guest after guest says, the challenge was hard, but thank you for getting me to do it. I wish I'd done it earlier. Listen on for leaders to inspire you. Hear their struggles. And then act. Go to joshuaspodick.com slash podcast to commit to a public, personal challenge of your own. You're not alone, and you don't have to wait for others. Brad does something here that few people do, which is he identifies the problem, our environmental problems, as rooted in our emotions and behavior, which many forces contribute to. He identifies the media. We also talk about scientists and other sources. This refinement of the understanding, it points to a solution mostly unaddressed by almost everyone. Emotions, feelings, community, not so much technology and innovation. This might not be what you'd expect from a seduction guru, that is, if you misunderstand the service that Brad provided, which is not about trickery, though some people think it is. On the contrary, it's about relationships and people, and very deeply so. Well, it happens to lead to more intimacy, which I remind you, when I say it, I mean physical intimacy, emotional intimacy, as well as intellectual intimacy. These are big elements of leadership. On a personal note, I have to say it's very relieving to share this part of my life now that I'm in the second episode with Brad. In retrospect, this part of my life is a lot more like sports and acting than I thought. It's just something I had to keep private because I'm scared of the people who have loud voices in our society. Maybe later someone will push back in a way that I feared, which would be based on a misunderstanding. But so far, I think people understand or intrigued. Anyway, Brad talks about learning social and emotional skills and getting results for his clients and students, which applies to many active, social, emotional, expressive, performance-based fields, such as leadership, such as initiative, such as entrepreneurship, such as acting on the environment. Welcome to the Leadership in the Environment podcast. This is Josh. I'm here with, with Brad. How are you doing? I'm doing great. How are you? I'm very good. And, you know, there's a whole bunch of things I want to talk about. And I also want to leave things open to other things coming up. So the big one is I want to hear about how the CSA is going. But I also want to, I was listening to the one before, and I, I normally don't laugh at my own funny things. But <laughs> like out came some really deep personal things. I mean, there's some inside view of the attraction dating coaching world. and there is the insight into, if you could wipe your face with it, I can wipe my butt with it. <laughs> <laughs> that's the hook right there that's going to make you famous. That could be the one. They're like, well, spread the message. If the face butt thing works, then <laughs> I guess that I saved the world. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, there was something that you noted when I talked about speaking to people and seeking to get people to act on the environment. You noted something that most people don't, which was you said, and actually it was when I was asking you to take on a challenge, to consider taking on something to act by your values. You said it really sucks that people, it's, there's so much apathy and people feel bad 
about it. And you identified what I consider also the main issue, which is carbon dioxide, methane, plastic, mercury. These are the measures of the problem, but they are not themselves the problem. They're not the cause. They're the effects because they can't act. You know, they're just, they react to us. And it's our emotions, I think. And you, you said apathy and things that lead people not to act. And very few people have picked up on that, or at least had that perspective that I think it's people's emotions are what motivate our behavior and our behavior is what's causing environmental issues. Yeah. I think the way the environmental problem has been communicated to the masses has really created that apathy. And it's a part of the way the news media likes to communicate with us. They like to give us a quick scare and then move on to the next thing. Uh, They don't like to do long form investigation or any constructive suggestions. They just like to say, oh, there's something terrible going on. It's screwed up. Now you need to watch us again tomorrow to find out more. That's interesting. Creates a lot of apathy in in a lot of situations, political, environmental, a lot of things. Yeah, I consider the media part of it. It's funny because when you said that, my first thought was about the scientists, I guess possibly because my more the physics background, that the scientists also, I feel like they're absolving themselves of responsibility. I mean, in your case, or in the media case, they want to bring people back and sell more ads. And in the science case, I think it's, they don't want to be wrong maybe, or they, they just, look, here's the data. You figure out what to do with it. It's obvious what you should do with it, but it's not so obvious to everyone. Yeah. They don't see themselves. They don't see that as their role to tell anybody what to do. They see their role as to figure out what's going on and let you know, which I think is, makes sense. From another perspective, it also says that they are contributing to the problem, which they would say, we're the ones who told you about the problem. We're the ones who are are trying to figure out a solution. But if the problem is... Well, they are in a good position to make some suggestions. That's, a, that's true. Well, if you view the problem as being the amount of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere or the amount of plastic in the oceans, then you might see it as a technical issue. But if you view it as the result of our behavior, then giving a bunch of facts is not effective and, and in this case would be counterproductive. So a different framing of, oh yeah, man, Einstein had that. Actually, it's, it's not known if he actually said it, but someone said... If you had an hour to, or he said, if, you, if I had an hour to solve a big problem, I would spend 55 minutes on understanding the question or understanding the problem and five minutes implementing it. Uh-huh. So if you, if you look at the problem as a technology innovation issue or a science issue, then you look for scientific solutions. But if you look at it as a behavioral issue, then you look for behavioral solutions. And people who generally know atmospheric chemistry and biology don't really know how to influence people, people's behavior effectively. Yeah. And that's why I think it's good that you went on TED Talk because, you know, the tech crowd, they all want to solve this stuff with technology. And I think they really overestimate uh, the power and impact of technology and they really underestimate the uh, negative effects that it can have. So TED Talk is filled with that type of, you know, pro-tech, we can fix anything and make it worse and not have any regret. You know, those people are infesting the TED Talk world. Infesting. (laughs) The TED world is lousy with them. (laughs) So yeah, yeah, I hope so. I mean, it's, yeah, before I hit the record button, we were talking about my my TEDx talk a couple of weeks ago and I haven't seen the video of it yet. I hope it makes this effective. You know, that's one of my big goals is to shift the focus of, of what we're doing to, to me, I would call it leadership and influencing people's behavior and ah, their behavior and their mood so that I'm not looking for just people lowering their 
what they might be doing to lower the Earth's ability to sustain human culture and society, but also to enjoy the process. Yeah, might as well have a good time while you're at it. I think if you don't, it's not you're not going to get anywhere. If people, That's right. if people are just like complying, they'll eventually find ways to undermine and push back and go back to what they were doing before. Well, with uh, you know, with corporations, they need the pain, the financial pain. Or they will, that's the only way they'll comply. Well, I'm not looking for compliance. I mean, it, it's the only way that they'll change their view to hopefully find enjoyment. I mean, companies, I don't know if they can feel joy, but to find... Sometimes I wonder, companies seem to be acting more and more like humans. They now have political opinions and they tweet stuff. And it's like, you're not a human, dude, your company. <laughs> I guess there'd be pathological humans, although that might be changed with B Corps. And then people are becoming less human. At one point, there were single-celled organisms, and they could do whatever they wanted. I don't know if they had any ability to want, but now all the cells <laughs> in our body, they have specific roles. And I feel like people, this is me being philosophical, that people are becoming more like cells in a greater organism, hmm. perhaps getting too far afield. Freaking far out, Josh. <laughs> oh, yeah. I was, I was thinking about the deflating of the myths, and, and uh, it made me think of, in, in now going back to teaching men and women attraction and, and dating and things like that. And I feel like even listening to our conversation before, having teach, taught and coached for a long time, I still felt like I'm still, oh yeah, listening to you, you, I guess you've been in it longer than I have and deeper than I have. And so it can, it, it, for you, it's just a more normal thing. I mean, I was also putting, I'm, I'm attaching my name to it. So it's a little more higher stakes for me, but a lot of it I'd liked hearing that it was not, even after all these years, it's not some big magical thing. It's if you practice and develop the skills, then you will be able to express yourself more openly. And it's not that big of a thing. It's like maybe now it is because it's not part of a mainstream school curriculum, but it's still something anyone can learn. Yeah. The hardest part of learning that topic, I think is unlearning um, the stuff that has been holding you back and and all the the negativity and all the, oh, you're bad if you like sex and things like that. The unlearning, I, I would say, is harder than the learning. One of the things that came to me is that it's whatever's easier, hard, the path is still practice what works. And if that's just, right, it always has been the path. Yeah. If you just keep practicing thing. exercises that work, yes, this will be hard. Maybe some parts will be easy for you if you're lucky. But out of that will emerge. A yeah, that stuff that you have to unlearn, that is like the dirt on top. And when you clean that off, you will emerge as an authentic someone who can express him or herself authentically, which is attractive. In some cases, yeah, depending on the person and things like that. Um, I don't stress authenticity in my teaching, but, uh, not because there's anything wrong with it, but just because it makes students kind of tense up when you tell someone you have to be authentic that makes them be like, oh man, what does that mean? And oh, geez, I better be good at this. And they start to get more pressured, I found. So I, I try to stress to people that they should do what's effective and they should experiment and be as freewheeling as possible because it's all just an experiment. And I find that that reduces the tendency to tense up and make it a pressured situation. Okay. So using the word, yeah, to say to someone, be more authentic probably wouldn't be effective. 
I'm just thinking of the, exp- of well, the description. Well, maybe some, some people do like it. And, you know, there's coaches out there in, in the uh, dating world that really push the authenticity angle. And the reason they, well, I think one of the reasons they do that is because everybody wants to be authentic and nobody wants to feel like they're just reading a script. You know, that's the dream in dating is to be able to kind of walk around, just being yourself and being authentic. And girls are just getting on their knees, sucking your all the time because you're just that cool, you know? But I, I've found that that, you know, the dream doesn't really happen like that. You know, it's, it's hard work. Everything's an uphill battle and you got to try a lot of experimenting. And uh, at times you will feel like it is very foreign, uh, this behavior, and it will not feel authentic. Things that feel authentic tend to be the things that are already in your comfort zone. So when you start getting out of your comfort zone, you're kind of go, going away from that authentic feeling. To me, being authentic is more of an internal feeling than a external action. Um, so when people get out of their comfort zones, you know, it's a little scary for them, but I, I strongly recommend it. It's got to be an experiment. You have to have the freedom to screw up and try things that aren't authentic and you haven't done before. And your mom wouldn't like the things you're doing. You have to have that freedom. You have to do those experiments. The learning process is hundreds of experiments, uh, sometimes thousands, and some of them work and some don't, and you just sort them out. And that's how you learn. It must be funny when you work with uh, great, like at your, I mean, when you were really in it, and I think you've moved on to other things mostly now, yes. but you had people coming in who are like heads of industries and things like that, paying serious daily rates for you. And yeah, I wonder for you, you're like, this is really just, you know, a bunch of exercises and you're just watching them and figuring out what's the right exercise for them to do at this point. Yeah, there was, you know, doctors, PhDs, uh, millionaires, those guys often need help with this. They have put a lot of dedication into their profession and social life kind of goes by the wayside um, and you don't put as much time into it. So they find themselves very far behind by the time they're in their mid thirties um, and they need a lot of help. So yeah, I'll sometimes work with those guys uh, a lot of hours, you know, it may be twice a week for six months in some cases, cause they have the money to do it and they have the drive to want to succeed. And they really have great work ethic too. It's almost like they're, you know, studying for their medical boards. Um, they got great work ethics. So I'll work with those guys a lot and yeah, have to go through all the, you know, what exercise is right for this guy at this time and, you know, manage the emotional journey of this as well. And it, it is interesting. Oh, so now I think I spoke too soon to say, oh, it's just picking the right exercise because there is that empathy and experience of recognizing it's not just giving someone an exercise, but it's realizing that this is really his emotions at play and maybe a sense of identity and his hopes and dreams. So yeah, actually, the biggest part of coaching is actually being an emotional support system for the student in a one-on-one situation because the student is going through some emotions that are very extreme. Uh, when it goes well, they get extremely happy. When it doesn't go well, they feel extremely embarrassed. They may, may feel a lot of pain, a lot of fear, um, and it and then. Sometimes they close a deal and it's so exhilarating or they get a phone number and it's like a victory that they've been waiting for their whole uh, life. So that's a a huge part of it is being that emotional support system. Picking the right exercises, of course, very important. Managing the goal setting and keeping people realistic. 
You know, everybody thinks that they're terrible when it goes bad, but they're not. And everybody thinks that they're the man when it goes good, but it's just really all kind of averages out. And what I'm trying to do as a coach is, is just kind of nudge those averages up over time, you know, and there is a probability and a numbers and averages to this stuff. You know, if you can get a phone number from 10% of the girls you talk to, you know, then we have, we know something is working or something is effective. Um, and we want to kind of push those numbers up and we want to look at how many of those girls actually text back and how many show up for a date and how many actually like you and how many, you know, what the trends are. So I really encourage students to look at macro trends more than look at single episodes or single reactions. You know, you can have, even if five or six women reject you, if the macro trend is that you're getting seven dates a month, uh, that's really the more important trend to look at. I wish this sort of, the way you're speaking, I think would be, I think surprising to most people because the market, I, I think that if you marketed a program based on what you said, like I will provide these things, I think you would not sell nearly as many as someone who marketed, I'm going to get you laid. I'm going to get you one night stands. Well, yeah, when you're selling, you got to talk about the most immediate urge and desire that people you know, a feel right now. So you have to speak to that. And I will get people laid. I, you will get laid. So I, I definitely prefer to harp on that. Yeah. I'm trying to think back, which would I have gone for myself? Like if someone said, although I do think, I think that was part of what you said back when I, before I got started with you was that you, I think you said one of your things was I put a lot of effort into being the best teacher. Someone had that and it resonated with me. Yeah, I do put a, that's what I put a lot of work into. Yeah. And to me, being the best teacher has a lot to do with the students and the results they get. If the students don't get the result, then I'm not the best teacher. So when I say I put a lot of work into being the best teacher, it's another way of saying, I will get you laid. I try to be the best at that. They're kind of synonymous for me. Uh, Others might say, I am myself the best, and therefore you should learn from me. And that may resonate. There's some appeal to that. There's some appeal to that for people, yeah. You know, going back to the authenticity part, I mean, when someone learns this, and it could be leadership, it could be dating, it could be lots of things. I think if lately I've been talking about Kobe Bryant won an Oscar for, I don't know if you know, his short called On Basketball. Oh, no, I haven't seen that. Yeah, it's, I mean, you go online and he he did it with John Williams, did the music and some guy who did the animation, I think was one of the top Disney guys. And so they made a a short, I think it's like five minutes. And it's based on a letter that Kobe Bryant wrote to basketball when he left or it's to basketball, maybe not on basketball. And Kobe Bryant. I thought he was still playing. Oh no. Yeah. I guess he retired a couple of years ago. Yeah. Yeah. He retired. Yeah. Probably not that big in, in LA though. <laughs> you know me, I'm in a bubble, man. And so he won an Oscar. And part of it, I think was that what he wrote was, it was just, you know, what you're saying, you have to get rid of all that crap. Like he doesn't have that crap anymore because he's been in the public eye in a million different ways, ups and downs and everything. And what does he have to do except to express himself how he feels? And in the public eye, and, and that was his part of winning an Oscar. He's the one who instigated it. And that I feel is, is like that, I, I saw that. And I thought that's a goal of mine is to be able to express myself so uninhibitedly on stuff that connects with, that's so personal to me that it must be personal, that's personal to everyone. And I feel like that's one of the main outcomes. So when I said authenticity, it's like that, to be able to express yourself in a way that it's so 
uninhibited by your, by my crap that everyone who hears it is like, that's, I have that, there's something of me in that as well. Something like that. See, I'll tell you, you know, Kobe Bryant, people want to listen to him. So he can talk off the top of his head in a sense, and people are going to be very intrigued with it. When you're going out to meet girls, I find that in most cases that you start off from a place of, I don't want to hear it, you know? And that's why I try to teach people to package what they say and their overall presentation in a way that's going to cut through the fact that you're dealing with an unwilling audience a lot of the time. So although it may be less authentic than, you know, just talking off the top of your head and winning an Oscar for it, it's going to probably be more effective if you package it in a way that addresses some of the objections that women have, which are, you know, women have the object, these objections for a reason. They can't reasonably talk to every guy who comes along and find out all about them. It has to be packaged in a way where they can get interested and they don't feel like it's going to be a total drag. Oh yeah. I didn't mean to walk up to a girl and, and be authentic and like, be like, Hey, I, I speak like Kobe Bryant. I mean, <laughs> in my, like the TEDx talk, I had two weeks to prepare it. And the first week was figuring out what to say and how to say it. And then about halfway through in the one week mark, I thought, all right, I now I know what to say. And then I thought, wait a minute, I don't just want to deliver a script. I really want myself to come out here. And that, so in a prepared context in general, uh, to have, there's a lot of environmental emotion and journey and experience that I think in my context, that's where I'm focusing my leadership efforts and right. for that to come out so that people can feel, ah, that's something that is in me as well. Yeah. Not necessarily in a pickup context. Right. Okay. I see what you mean. Although that also reminded me of, uh, you know, I have this book coming out in a month on initiative. And I, one of the things I do is I talk to, I talk about how a lot of stuff on like business plan competitions and Shark Tank, great drama. You know, I'm a big fan of people making a television show that is entertaining and fun to watch. But if people think that they're learning effective entrepreneurship skills from Shark Tank, I think they're mistaken. <laughs> you think? <laughs> well, the thing is, even if you know that it's not how it works when it works, you don't know what works and what doesn't. So I'm watching, it happens that uh, Mark Cuban came to speak at NYU and there was a professor who brought him. So the two of them just chatted for a bit and there's a big audience. Like it was uh, standing room only in this big lecture hall or not lecture hall, but like performance hall. And at the end they have, they said, all right, we brought three students who won some various business plan competitions and they're going to come up and you're going to be a shark and they're going to come and present their ideas in, in front of the crowd. And it's going to be a live shark tank sort of situation. Mm -hmm. And so I wrote this book about how I think like elevator pitches are distracting from working with you know, like so many people, they spend so much time on their elevator pitches and I'm, I'm like, work on your customers, you know, your operations, your strategy. And so this guy goes up and presents to Mark Cuban and he's, he kills it. It's like really good. And I was like, oh man, maybe I was wrong. This is a really effective presentation. I want to invest in this thing. And so Mark Cuban starts asking some questions. The guy's answering really well. I was like, well, maybe I have to, maybe I have to rewrite this book. And but then he keeps asking more questions. And at some point it falls apart. He asks a really obvious question that the guy didn't know the answer to. And then Cuban was like, wait a minute, how do you not know this? What, like, explain this. And the guy couldn't explain it. And I say this now because it felt like you said women have their responses for reasons. And I was like, this guy, I felt like someone, I don't know what it's like to have a bunch of suitors come up to me at a bar and try to pick me up. 
I, I don't think many men have that happen to them, but I had to imagine, I think a lot of women have had experiences like that. And I felt like that, is this what it feels like for a woman? Like the guy seems perfect and then it falls apart. Like you, there's a little. Yeah. If you ask enough questions, it starts falling apart. Yeah. And I was like, I guess there's a lot of guys out there who have a really great facade and then it falls apart. It's like, it must be very deflating because if you bought into that facade, you might, you might've, whoa, you might've been in a big mistake there. Yeah. I mean, a, a good facade will take you a long way in dating. I don't know. I, f- I feel like not a lot of guys even have that, you know? It got me thinking of like, what's it like to be a woman and have the facade go for a long time. And then suddenly you pull at the thread and the whole sweater comes out and you're like, oh crap. I, I, well, I well, women are really good at sniffing that out. You know, I, I would say the most, the most likely scenario on that is the woman wants a relationship and the guy wants sex and the guy has to act like he wants to relate a relationship in order to get the sex. So women are constantly trying to sniff out that uh, facade. And, and yeah, I mean, as a guy, you kind of, you have to have some, something to address that, you know, demand that women want. If they like you, they want to go in an immediate relationship with, you know, when it, when it's not really appropriate or, the timing isn't right yet. So you, you kind of have to be ready for that as a man. So the guy has to sniff out if the woman is implying that she's going to give sex when she wants a relationship. The guy, uh, I think women are less likely to give a facade. Women are pretty direct. They're like, no, you have to be my boyfriend. I only have sex with a guy in a committed relationship and blah, 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 blah. You know, they're, they're pretty direct with that, even if it's not always the case. I guess, I guess the facade with women is that, women actually have a lot more sex than they really let on. Uh, so the, the facade with women is the, you know, purity for fa- facade. Well, I was thinking of, uh, I mean, I haven't gone out clubbing in New York, but the women dress pretty attractively to, they don't look like long-term relationship outfits. Well, sure. But if you, if you go and women don't look at it that way, you know, they just, their outfit is to get attention. And when you talk to them, 10 out of 10 women are going to say, I don't sleep with guys on the first date. I, I've never done that in my life. I only have sex with my boyfriend. I've only had two boyfriends, you know, and the reality may be, you know, multiply that by 50. That might be the reality. So it's a different kind of facade, you know, because mm. they do have sex. <laughs> when they just <laughs> <a month. laughs> it happens sometimes. Yeah. I'm also curious, changing the topic a little I haven't yet posted the conversation we had before. It's a long conversation, okay. so I'll probably have to break it up into two or maybe even three parts. Okay. And I keep going back and forth, but I think I have to put it up before the book because I want to get the book out to a lot of people. And I feel like if it's... Actually, I don't know how... you Since you moved to other things, do you send stuff to your email list? Is that still active? Because I, I was thinking oh. it'd be cool to have you sent out to your list, check out this conversation I had and to make that a part of it. The list is gone, my friend. Ah. Yes. I was actually, I was running the company still for a couple of years and I was, you know, I was still coaching a few times a year. And uh, now that I'm so embroiled with this opiate epidemic, I'm really focusing all only on that. And so I have the company pretty much shut down, but the community side of it is still around. All my old material is now free. I'm giving it away free. 
And the forum for 3030 members is still open. So there's still hundreds of guys who can come on 3030 forum if they want to. And new guys can just download everything and give it a whirl. But I don't really, um, I'm not operating as a commercial venture or, or as a infield coach anymore. So all this worry that I had, I think it's going to be, I've been trying to think of like what's, what's the reaction is going to be. And I think the overwhelming reaction is going to be indifference of this stuff that I was like so scared of for so long. Of Indifference um, to putting out a book? To identify, to putting my name to, to oh, what I did. Oh, yeah, yeah. I, I think it's going to be indifference too. Yeah. You would have to be, a, like if you were running a church, people might be upset, but <laughs> well, as kind of like a, you know, open-minded liberal college professor guy who isn't married, doesn't have kids. I don't think anybody's going to really bat an eye at this. No, I think married with kids would make it easier. Like if I had a supportive wife saying, oh yes, of course, that's what I married him for is one of the big things. Cause then it would be like female approval. Yeah, but if you had a wife and a kid and everybody was like, he's out behind his wife's back, walking to girls in bars. What a scumbag, you know? I mean, you might get a few of those people, but you have to be a very big name to upset people, you know? Well, I do want that to happen. I mean, not the goal for my name to be- You want to upset people? I want (laughs) (laughs) It's not that I want my name to be big, although I'm not opposed to that, but it's, you know, I want to have a big effect. Yeah of this missing view of what's causing these problems, these environmental yeah, issues. Sure. Yeah. And if a few people get mad, it kind of like goes away pretty fast these days. Cause nobody's got much of an attention span, you know, and this is like, I'd be more mad at me than you, I think. Oh, good. Well, I'll point at you then say it's his fault. <laughs> yeah. Just point at me. It's fine. Cause if you, if you cherry pick my, you know, books and audio for the most misogynistic stuff and you take it out of context, it, w- it would definitely sound pretty alarming, I would say. Yeah, probably some of mine stuff too. Not, not like not, me. Oh, yeah, not like yours. <laughs> I'll get you more than you can handle. <laughs> it, it, wow. Which makes it so much more, so ironic, given my experience of, of observing you in action with men who are hurting and feeling pain and, and, and have this forlorn view of them, I have no hope, and then turning that around through empathy and compassion and sensitivity and and, you know, get laid too. But Josh, I get people pussy. Yeah. <laughs> I use the word pussy. Must be a terrible guy. You know, it's funny when I, I, I might've said this last time, but when I work with my coaching clients now who are executives in like Fortune 100 companies and they're like really important people, not that the people I was working with when I was just, when I was dating coaching weren't important also, but at some point I outright tell them about what I'm doing and it opens up the relationship because now they can see where a lot of this comes from and they can connect it with emotions that are more visceral and more intense. And, you know, you talked about the highs being high and the lows being low. Yeah, that's right. In my case, when I bring that, that level of emotional intensity and openness and vulnerability into a coaching relationship, even if it's about business, it opens everything up and the communication level is higher and deeper. So when I work with just one person and that person knows me well, they're like, wow, I wish you'd spoken about this earlier because now the thing is, this is like turbocharging the coaching relationship. Well, that's great. Yeah. Yeah. People probably think a business coach is going to be like a, you know, it's just going to be kind of stiff and okay, now do this, now do that. It you turns it, yeah, it turns into friendship, it gets really close and people can share stuff that they haven't before. Right. Mm-hmm. 
And I certainly like talking about the exploits, connecting that to connecting, meeting women in large numbers and having deep, intimate relationships with them very quickly to leadership. It's not obvious, but then once the connection happens, they're like, oh, wow, that really works. Nice. Yeah. That's great. Feeling inspired? Do you like hearing others acting that you're not alone? Go to joshuaspodek.com slash podcast to hear other interviews, but even more valuable, join the growing community of people who care enough to act, not just talk. Read the list of people who have taken on personal challenges and then commit to one yourself. Don't be surprised if you end up loving it, changing more, and finding people following you without you even trying. That's what happens when you improve your life by living by your values. So we could talk about this forever, and I would like to. I want to talk about CSAs, though. And Oh, yeah. I can't wait to tell you this. Before we hit record, you said, I want to tell you the stuff I want to tell you, but not until it's on. And I was like, oh, that could go in a lot of different directions. And so my first thought was, so people who don't know, you have a, you have a deck, a patio. I'm like, there's going to be tomatoes and corn growing on the patio. <laughs> but that would no. be really fast because even I... Can't grow them that fast. Yeah. Although Southern California has the sunshine to do that. Yeah, I guess. I don't know much about it. So here's what happened with the CSAs. Oh, oh yeah. And before we do it, let's remind people in case it's been a couple months since they listened to it. What's the... So when I was there, I took you to farmer's market. And right. you and your girlfriend really liked it. That was yeah. my read. And I made you some famous no packaging vegetable stew and you started doing that. And then I told you about a CSA, but you hadn't, you didn't really know about it. And so to get yeah, started, it takes some effort. So is that about what, did I summarize what the challenge yeah. was? And so I said, all right, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to join a CSA. I'm going to have them deliver some stuff to my house and some stuff to my business location as well. So I can kind of knock out quite a bit of packaging, you know? That won't, won't have to get used. And uh, so that was the challenge. And this is the report. Are you ready for it? Yes. Okay. So here's the deal with CSAs. And keep in mind, I'm in Los Angeles area. I went online. I started reading up on them. You sent me a list. I clicked on all those. I checked them all out. And then I was like, all right, time to pick, a, pick one. So I picked one. And I like hit their subscribe buttons and all that stuff. And it got real confusing. And I was like, all right, let me just, you know, sign up and whatever they give me, they'll give me. Hit the sign up button, website's dead. So I was like, all right, let me try a different one. Try a different one. Same same thing, very confusing. I'm like, all right, well, it's all Tuesday afternoon. I'll just call them up, you know, and and they can kind of walk me through it. Call up, phone number disconnected. So then I was like, all right, well, let me try another one here. And so I kept shopping and shopping and shopping. Then I find one that is like the South Central one. Um, is very controversial because they're growing all the vegetables on land that they don't own and they, there's a bunch of lawsuits around it. And I was like, all right, well, I don't want to join that one, you know? And, and then I go to, you know, the next one and the next one and the next one. And they all had so many problems. And the main problem I found with the, the rest of them was that, you know, the ones that are actually operational and have a working phone number and a working website is that they're dropping off food, you know, in a box somewhere and they have their drop wherever it is. It's at an elementary school or it's at the courthouse or some public space, right? But all the drop-off points were at least 40 minutes from me. Like, you know how LA traffic is. So the CSA thing, bottom line, is it absolutely does not work. And I came to the conclusion that 
it's better off for me to just go to the farmer's market because the farmer's market is five minutes from my house. Mm-hmm. It's there every Sunday. And it's honestly more fun to walk around and, you know, there's people around, there's music playing and it's just better to go to a farmer's market five minutes away and walk around and pick the food out than it is to get a pre-made box of food that I have to drive 40 minutes each way for. So the CSA thing was a complete bust is what I'm telling you here. And it might be different if you live right by their drop-off spot or if you don't have a farmer's market real close to you like, like I do, maybe it would make more sense. Or maybe there's ones that do deliver to your house in your area and their website works and their phone works. But for whatever reason in my situation, there's no CSA that I can join that'll bring the stuff to my house or to my business. So I regretfully wish to inform you, Mr. Josh Kodak, <laughs> was a flop. But here's the good part. Still going to the farmer's market and it's fun, you know? So I went today, I got a bunch of stuff for a stew. It's Sunday today. So Sunday stew day. And um, my girlfriend's out of town. So I'm making the stew myself this time. So just kind of going over old plans and recipes and I'm sticking with that. CSA, what a bust. (laughs) So the the biggest surprise in all that to me was you're the one making the stew. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> if I remember right, it's she makes the stew and you clean things. Is is the yeah, usual? That's the way way it goes most of the time. And it could have been she's away frozen pizza. <laughs> right, right. But I also heard when I hear Sunday have my stew. Day, that makes it sound like that's like a little thing that you guys have. Yep, Sunday is always stew day. So I mean, unless there's rare exceptions, but that's that's kind of the routine, you know. So that tells me, so the CSA not working, it felt like first it sounded like a lot of people in, what would you call it? Like green stuff. They don't have the solid business skills. And so they're not going to put the effort into marketing it and making sure that operations work so well. But then I'm thinking maybe it's the population density is a big piece of it because when they drop something off here on 16th off of 6th Avenue, within walking distance are probably, I don't know, maybe 100,000 people. And it's right by a subway stop. So the number of people this going- Los Angeles. There's a lot of population density here. Is there? I, did, I, oh, I feel yeah. like it's spread out more well, than- I guess not quite like Manhattan, but still, you know, I don't, I don't think that's the issue. Huh. I don't know what it is. You know, I, I tried them all. I mean, I put in a lot of effort, you know? Yeah, maybe they're not updating their websites. Maybe it's just not a viable business. That's kind of what I kind of came down to because- I don't know. It's just not not a real popular idea. The public isn't jonesing for more CSAs. That's that's kind of my guess. So it doesn't have, you know, enough momentum as an idea for these places to keep their phones on or keep their websites working. Yeah, I'm looking for different because it's grow. As far as I know, it's growing in New York. So I'm I was looking for like differences between New York and LA that might explain it. That it could be something about the geography or it could be something. Maybe it's because we have so many farmer's markets here and it's pretty easy just to go. Yeah, that could be it too. There's not, there are farmer's markets here, but not as probably not as many as there. And the selection. Quite a lot here. Um, Like within, you know, 10 or 15 minutes from my house, there's the Sunday one. That's really close. There's a Tuesday one also. That's like a nighttime one. That's pretty close. That those are probably both, you know, kind of walking distance. If you really wanted to, you could walk. And then there's a third one that's seven days a week um, at a mall called the Grove. So even if you miss the Sunday one, you can always stop by there, you know. And that's like a 
right in the middle of town place, the Grove. It's super popular. Everybody goes there all the time. That also reminds me when I was in LA, when I was there in November, when I first got there, because <laughs> I took the train, I'm walking from the Amtrak station to the hotel, which is in downtown LA. Right. And it was, I don't know, 20, 30 minute walk. And on the way, I passed by a farmer's market with the most amazing fruit that I had in years because it's Southern California and it was like local stuff. So yeah. Yeah, there's a big farmer's market in downtown too. My girlfriend works in downtown and she goes to this farmer's market. She brings home stuff. I mean, even before you turned us on to the whole thing, she was hitting that farmer's market once in a while um, and getting some stuff. So that probably has something to do with it too. Here, there's increasingly stores that have higher end produce than say the 80s when I moved here. Okay. But I don't think on the scale, I mean, an outdoor farmer's market just doesn't work year round here like no. it would there. No, definitely not. And even if it was a bust for you in terms of you weren't able to find the CSA, most people's personal projects that they take on for this podcast, they don't end up working exactly how they envisioned it, but it's that right. growth and sticking with it. So if it emerged into you, I heard the word fun coming out of you going to the farmer's market and the Sunday stew day. It sounds like it's, Developing, it's, I'm hearing lifestyle change that's a reward, not a compliance or obligation. Yeah, and that is the goal of all this, right? We want to have a lifestyle change and reduce trash and reduce carbon emissions and all that stuff. And I, w- I would say that's probably happened because you know how it is when you make a stew. You're not just eating it for one day. You're eating that thing like, you know, three or four days. So yeah, I've noticed a definite drop in you know, the amount of trash bags going out to the trash. So that's good. My, I guess my next challenge with it, where I really want to expand this is that, as you know, I own this, uh, these businesses and they, there's a lot of people eating. And I re- now that the CSA didn't work, I really want to find a way to get the fresh uh, food and the no package stew into that, you know, situation because the... Um, the detox I run, it's like, you know, there's 14 patients there plus the staff. So there's 20 people eating every day. And then I, ju- I just have another one starting up now that's probably going to be double the size. So I want to implement this in those areas because I think it'll have an even bigger effect because it's more people, you know. Well, I've been invited to speak at the summit. So I'll be back in LA in November. And that's a long time for now. But I'll be happy to come and cook for everyone. <laughs> oh, yeah, that would be great. Going to be a challenge though. They're on the 7 Eleven diet, you know, before they come in. <laughs> That's the type of challenge I'm looking for. Perfect. And there's actually, I've been preparing for another guest I'm having on the podcast soon is Dr. Michael Greger, who does this uh, nutritionfacts.org and these videos on nutrition and stuff. Oh, I know Dr. Greger. Okay. So he's going to be on the podcast. Oh, cool. Yeah, I like Dr. Greger. Me Dr. Too. Greger was, uh, he had a couple of videos. I watched him. I went vegan the next day. Oh, is that why? Or is that what, yeah. what the impetus? My, my mom was into it and she was telling me about it. I was like, oh, maybe I'll check it out. And the Dr. Greger videos just kind of packaged up all the info in a, in a really uh, easy to understand way. Um, you know, like a 45 minute video, I think. And I, I was just like, all right, well, that, that's convincing. I am convinced. Done. All right. Oh, I'm glad I brought him up. Yeah. I wish I brought him up earlier. Yeah, I like Dr. Greger. So I've been thinking about questions to ask him. And one of them is that I find, okay, when I eat the food that I eat now, it's more delicious than ever before. I've talked about that for a long time. There's another effect that I've been picking up on. And I don't know if it's, if I'm picking on something that's not there. Anyway, 
I feel really good when I eat the fresh vegetables. Like I think that there's probably some like psychoactive compounds that are like making me feel good. That, you know, I mean, people who are really into like gooey fudge sundays, there's also like a, an indulgent feeling there. I don't know that feeling too, but this is different. This is like, yeah. Like I feel like it's maybe a sugar high, but spaced out. So it, it's not quite mm-hmm. so intense, but it, it feels really good. And it took a long time to get the, you know, for the, the sea can't be choppy if you want to pick up a small, the pattern of a, of a small wave. You have to wait for it to really calm down to pick up the ripples of, of one little thing. And so I had to wait for a while to pick up the, the sensitivity of noticing it, but I think it makes me feel really good. And I don't know if that's going to help someone who's on heroin or fentanyl, because that's going to be really far off by the time they can sense that level of goodness. But man, it feels really good. I, I tell you what, if you think it feels really good and you tell them that, they'll be into it because they want any kind of chemical mood improvement. And I think food counts as a chemical mood improvement. So, well, it might take a couple of years to get that. Oh, well, they're not into that. They want. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think there's an immediate good feeling. Like when I went vegan, I was very skeptical of this like whole thing. You know, Dr. Greger's videos are about long-term health effects. And I think they're very persuasive. So I said, okay, for, for long-term health improvement, this is worth it. I'll do it. And all these hippies say that you feel better when you're vegetarian or when you're vegan. And I think that's probably just like a psychological trick they're playing on themselves, you know, because that's like, dude, bro, go vegan, smoke weed. You feel great. Like, I don't know. There's something about that scene that I just don't buy it with those people like Burning Man, hippies and stuff. But anyway, so I was very skeptical. (laughs) And, uh, you know, a couple of days later, I felt great and I had even more energy and I didn't need more energy. I already had a lot and I had even more. And I was like, wow, damn Burning Man hit me tonight. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and uh, it's, if you can feel it when you don't want to feel it and you don't expect to feel it, then I think that kind of proves in a way that it's not just psychological or some kind of thing that you're talking yourself into. I think there's something real there. Yeah, because the, I would talk about self-awareness because you're like the chopping and stuff. It's kind of like a meditative sort of thing. It's not really meditation, but it's then yeah, it's kind of fun. The chopping, yeah, it's like focused on one basic thing. It lets you slow down your mind a little. You know, like it's oh, it's almost the opposite of like phone cycling, where you're like Instagram, Facebook, email, Instagram, Facebook, email. Oh yeah, Instagram, you know, chopping vegetables is probably the opposite of that. Actually, I just did that. I just put on my board again. No daily or faster pages until launch. Cause I was not going on to my rule for like, if there's a page that refreshes daily or faster, I was avoiding it for a couple of years. And then I thought, all right, it's been a couple of years. I, I finished the things that I was putting that was getting in the way of me doing. Yeah. And so I'm going back on Reddit and stuff like that. And I'm reading the stuff. And I'm like, oh, this is really interesting. This is really useful. And then I realized that it gives you that tug. And then you justify, you know, it's, it's, you want to do it and then you justify why it's right. Not the other way around, <laughs> but it feels like you do it the other way around. And I feel like the industrial revolution, there's a big trend of, of saving labor, you know, using steam to power locomotives, using steam to power factories, then using electricity to do that and using fossil fuels to do that and so forth. And now I think the trend is not necessarily to save labor. 
but it's to make you, it's to trigger your reward system. And right. You got to keep those eyeballs coming. And that's the world that we've, we've created a world of like, of triggering rewards. So you want to do that thing again. We're like little rats in a maze or not in a maze. Like the, they put the rat. If you, if you press this button, you get water. And if you press this button, you get cocaine and then (laughs) cocaine themselves until they die of thirst or something like that. And that's what we're doing. I was going to say, except that we're doing it with like uh, cell phones and things, but we're also doing it with the opiates because the Sacklers and all that stuff, it's, oh man, I'm getting off topic. Not me, man. I'd, I'd rather get rich than have an Instagram account. Those well, two things are the opposite. I tend to agree. Yeah. And although I would say not rich, but feel emotional reward, like to have a rich life by whatever rich means to the person, to that individual. Uh-huh. Yeah. If you were on Instagram all day, you wouldn't be saving the world from carbon emissions and doing TED Talks. And it seems to be the way the world is going, though. If just like press this button and get the reward, press this button, get the reward. It's not a real reward, though. That's why it's kind of like I've, always, I've been suspicious of it for the last few years because it's who are you rewarding? You know, maybe the Mark Zuckerberg. You're not rewarding yourself. Well, it's yeah, it's not an emotional reward. It's a it's a feeling of want more. I talked to you about that, right? The difference between want yeah. more and taste good. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so it's, it's want more. It's, it feels like tastes good, but it actually is want more. And sometimes it's both, but they'll give you the feels good. They don't mind that, but they want to make sure that you get the want more. And so mm-hmm. everything's around like, want more, want more, want more. Feeling, ah, on a superficial level, feeling like, oh, I'm getting what I want. But they really just want more. Yeah. Yeah, I don't think we're going to win this one, though. You know, but that's okay. If, if a bunch of other people waste their time, hey, do it. <laughs> well, that's the thing about the environment is like if people are, are eating gluttonously into obesity and, you know, it affects my insurance rates and it affects the productivity of the nation and so forth, but it's mostly affecting only themselves. But if they are polluting the water that I drink and the air that I breathe, then I might get rich in, the pro- in some way. I might live a very happy life, but that it's affecting me. And from up until very recently, I think people could, could still say, yeah, there's still a lot of doubt and probably not within my lifetime, but I don't think we can say that anymore. No, not no more. And so that's, what's driving me is like, I can't live with, I'm not satisfied just to say, I'll probably die before the worst of it happens, which I still think that probably would be the case, but maybe not. But, that little climate thing that says this, the climate of your city is going to change and the new climate is going to be like this other city. Did you see that? You know what I'm talking about? Well, they, you can check whatever city you live in and see what the climate's going to be like in, I don't know, 50 years or 40 years or whatever. Like within, you know, our lifetime, not, we won't be dead. So I live in LA. So they said the new climate in LA will be uh, the same as... Like Dakar. It was, and now it was something in Mexico. It was like San, San Luis Obispo. Is that, no, that's in California. I don't know. It was, it was someplace in, in uh, Mexico. That's just kind of like hot and rainy, you know, uh-huh. um, and more humid. And it was, I think that was interesting because it does make, it gives it a more concrete meaning for people, you know, because nobody knows what's really going to be like. They're like, oh, Oceans are going to rise. We'll lose a few islands. Am I, am I on those islands? But this thing actually said, your city will now have the climate of this other city. So you, if you want to know what that climate's like, you can go there and check it out. Decide if you like it, you know? 
So I'll find the link and stick it up for people to click. Yeah. But it's still just more bad news with no, you know, no positive message. Yeah. So that's one of the big messages that I want to bring in is like, I was walking, I was on Delancey street or somewhere down the lower side. And I'm just, I don't know where I wasn't that important. I'm just walking along, you know, I pick up a piece of trash per day. So I'm more sensitive now than I used to be to garbage on the street. So I see someone coming out of a restaurant with a big garbage bag and they're putting it on the pile. And I was like, okay, that's putting garbage on the street, but it's like it's to be picked up by the garbage truck. It's not littering. So it's not that bad. And I was like, wait a minute, when did putting trash out for any reason become that's normal? Like it's still garbage. And then I started thinking like it was the way we got to be overpolluted was we had a lot fewer people producing less garbage each, but now we have a lot more people producing more garbage each. And I was like, oh man, this is really snowballing. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. And the flip side, what is missing is that if you just were going to decrease the damage, then I guess some people will feel better about being a part of something bigger than themselves and so forth. But the big thing that's missing is how delicious the food is, how fun it becomes, and that it's more deeply rewarding and fun and, and community and relationships and self awareness when it didn't have to be that way. And if you don't experience it, you don't know it. But when you do experience it, then it's, you don't want to go back. Yeah. Like, I don't, I don't hear you saying that you miss meat. And I don't know exactly the reasons why I switched. It sounds like it was health reasons because Gregor is more about health than environment stuff. Yeah. yeah, it was just health reasons, yeah. And I didn't find the switch to be very difficult. I'm not like super passionate about meat and cheese or anything. I like, I like it but I don't find it to be a real big deal. I don't know. There's a lot of good food that doesn't have meat and cheese. So I didn't find it difficult. Yeah, I think even for people for whom it's difficult, there's still some other changes they can make that aren't difficult. For everyone, there's something that they care about that for them, that thing is going to be either easy or more than worth the effort. And once they get to the other side of that effort or the switch, if it was easy, then it's like, wow, that's great. And that's what I'm trying to get out there. It's like, yeah, there's 5% effort but 95% of joy on the other side of that effort. Yeah. Yeah. Like I always say, people just need a very specific game plan, you know? And uh, I I looked at some of your, um, you know, your leadership intro video and it's, it is really well laid out, you know, and, and hopefully your book will help as well. And it's a very different take. It's a very unique take on the problem because the bad news approach, I feel like it just hasn't really worked that well. I mean, I don't want to say it hasn't worked at all because there is a lot more like solar panels out there, right? There's a lot more solar energy. I guess there's some awareness for whatever that's worth. People are going vegan more, but I don't know. I feel like the more constructive approach that you're taking could capitalize on that and, and make some a result that's a little more tangible, you know, because the bad news approach just makes everybody feel like shit and nobody knows what to do. And then that's just the stalemate. I've been thinking about why people go with the bad news approach. And I think I, I think I figured it out, not for everyone, but for a lot of people. Because a lot of people, when they learn stuff, they tell you what they, what they learned, not how they learned it. But what gets you to learn it is usually you have to do what they did to learn it. And so I think what happens is people, people have some motivation to change. They change. And then they see something that reinforces why the change was a good thing. And that's usually some apocalyptic thing. So they share with you what cemented it for them. 
but not what actually did it. Or for me, I saw garbage and I wanted to have less garbage. And so I went for no packaging. Then in most cases, someone, if they make that switch and like, oh, they're happy now. And then they read, Florida is going to be underwater. And they say, oh my God, this is really, I got to share this. This is not just me. This is something really big. And they go to someone else and say, Florida is going to be underwater. You should do what I did. But they didn't do it because Florida was under, because of the Florida underwater business. What started them was actually something more personal, usually. And that personal thing, they don't usually share because it's personal to them. So for one thing, what's personal to, what, what's intrinsic to me may be extrinsic to you if you have slightly different values than I do. But also a lot of people feel like what they think is, like when I asked you what something that you could do to act on your value, I, I was just listening to our conversation from last time. You said, well, I guess the biggest thing that I could do is blah, blah, blah. But I didn't ask you what the biggest thing was. I asked you what was valuable for you personally. And everyone makes that leap from like, what I do for myself isn't that valuable. I should pick the biggest thing, but that's not meaningful to them. That's just big. So but it's actually what's inside that's more meaningful. And we discount, like maybe for me, it's like, I was talking to this guy who was over a little while ago and he was, he was talking about, I kept asking him like, what, what does the environment mean to you? What is it? What's important to you? And he kept, it was all academic, like, oh, the environment is this, the environment is that. And, you know, this is what people should do. And this is what other people are doing. And he's trying to deconstruct my approach and stuff because his wife was like, I'd done it with her. And she was like, oh, wow, this is amazing. You got to do it with my husband. I was like, I'm not a dancing monkey, but sure. (laughs) And he's like pushing back and just not opening up. And then finally, after like half an hour of him, like pushing my buttons, I was almost angry at the guy. Yeah. And then he says, he grew up in, um, I forget, Kazakhstan or somewhere around there, somewhere in like the uh, mid, not Middle East, but what do you call it? Uh, Central Asia. And he says, okay, where he grew up, there are tons of apple orchards. And he said that apparently, according to him, apples were discovered by humans around then. And all apples came from somewhere around there. So there's a great variety of types of apples there. In particular, there's an apple orchard not far from where he lived growing up. And that apple orchard is no longer there. And if it's gone, for, if some, there are some types of apples that if they're gone from there, they're gone. Because uh-huh. that's the cradle of apples. I'm, you know, I'm paraphrasing. I, I'm, something like that. And for him, right. it's like apples meant, those apple orchards are very meaningful to him. But it feels to him like that's not as important as all these other things of like carbon dioxide emissions and so forth. But then when I start talking about those apple orchards, all that academic, analytical, everyone else, not me, all that went away. And he started really talking about his childhood and stuff like that. And then when I said, do you want to act on that? He's like, yeah, I would. And, but he's not going to tell people because of the apple orchards where I grew up, you should do X. He's going to say, if it sticks, then he's going to find, after it sticks, he's going to find something that he's making a difference on. And he's going to be like, that's why I do it. And I'm, I'm going to tell people they should do it because of that big thing. I'm, you know, this is not all cases, but st- something like that. It's like something after the fact reinforces that they feel really good about that, about something they did before for, for their apple orchard. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And what I'm trying to do on this podcast is find everyone's apple orchard. Uh-huh. The danger to me is all the preachy environmentalist thing when, when people start to share it, you know, and that's why it's, you have like more of a, the, this is going to be fun you know, the farmer's market and stew and, you know, it's going to be a good time. It's, that, that I feel like it's going to work better than, oh, X amount of uh, apple orchards are disappearing. Yeah, I'm, I'm trying to switch from being a preachy environmentalist because I keep trying. Well, well, yeah, good time environmentalist is probably going to be more effective. Like, I don't tell people I'm vegan, right? Because honestly, I don't, for me, it's not an identity. It's not like something I 
base my, I don't look at myself that way. It's just something that you, that you eat and what you eat is not the biggest deal in my opinion, but I don't tell people because I don't want to get lumped in with those preachy vegans who tell everybody to be vegan and tell you about, you know, slaughterhouses. And I mean, these people are not (laughs) well-received, you know what I'm saying, Josh? Yeah. Yeah. I think when you said preachy environmentalist, I thought inquisitive leader, because to me, I don't know what's good or bad for other people until I ask them because everyone's got their unique view. So before I say, would you like to act on a value? I have to ask what the value is. And I guess before that, I have to make them feel comfortable. So I want to be supportive. So supportive, inquisitive leader. Yeah, because they're getting ready for the preachy environmentalist. Everybody has an image of that at this point. And nobody likes it that much. But we all know we got to listen to them. You know, it's like, okay, and now I feel like shit. But I got to listen to this guy. So, yeah, it's good. It's good that you have more of a, you know, flexible approach, less judgy, less negative. I, I think that's what it really, what's really needed. I hope so. Cause that's what I'm doing. Yeah. <laughs> well, it makes a lot of sense now that I've kind of seen it, you know, over a couple months, I think it makes a lot of sense. Yeah. You have an inquisitive beginning as well. Do you like horses? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> we'll start, start with that. So now I'm curious of, you were talking about the next stage of introducing it to the workplace and people who are addicted. And I'm curious if you, if you've thought concretely about that. Well, I'm not really trying to necessarily turn everyone onto it who is coming off heroin because I don't know how they, they won't be able to pay attention. Maybe a few of them, but not that many. But just eliminating 60 people worth of garbage for a few meals a week, that's kind of more what I'm going for. And we're already, you know, we don't use paper plates or anything. We're already doing the dishes instead. Um, but but there is a fair bit of packaging on the food that comes in. You know, there's like a Costco order and stuff like that, and you know, going to the supermarket. So that's more what I'm targeting right now. Oh, man, if I was there, I would, I would, well, I, I do now I want to go there and do a meal if you haven't already started it by the time I get there and see the reaction. Cause I feel like if I was there enough, I could start picking up a couple of patterns and seeing where I try to probably make a difference in one or two people and try to build from there or maybe try to make it available and see how they react and see if I could kind of tune it so that they would find something in it that they didn't expect. Yeah, you know, the thing with addicts is they're, you might be able to plant a seed, I would say. They're, they're dealing with like pretty much life and death urges and they're only focusing on that. But you might be able to plant a seed. I mean, right now I'm trying to create programs that help them get jobs. So, and, and most of the jobs are actually food services jobs. It's one of the easiest jobs to get where, you know, you don't really need to necessarily have a whole lot of training or experience. So, you know, you might be able to plant a seed with some of these guys if it's felt like it was job relevant because they're very interested in jobs, which is good. Yeah, it got my wheels turning. Well, I'll tell you what we're doing now. Quick, quick rundown on how rehab works. Uh, you do 10 days of detox, you do another 20 days of residential. So that's 30 days where you can't leave, you know, the premises. You, you have like no freedom. Um, and then from there, you do three months of outpatient. So you're living in a sober living and you're in treatment six days a week, 
for starters, you're doing six hours a day and then you go down to three hours a day. So you slowly get introduced back into real life. So the job training happens mostly in the outpatient setting because you know your brain's starting to come back and you can start to think clearly again. The clouds are lifting. Uh, but what we're doing right now to plant the seed is one day a week, we take them to volunteer at the soup kitchen doing food prep. So that works on several levels. First of all, we, you know, a lot of the addicts I treat are homeless um, or have been homeless right before they come to us. So we want them to see the older homeless people and let that be a cautionary tale in a sense. Also, we want them learning those food prep skills. And then the other thing we're doing is we have our chef who's, you know, he's, a, he's got a solid job and he's a pretty happy guy. We want to turn our chef into a bit of a role model for them. And so every week he does a group uh, teaching session where he shows them about cooking and it's basic skills. It's like, here's how to keep the knives clean. Here's how to make mayonnaise from scratch. Here's how to make this other thing from scratch. Here's how to slice vegetables without cutting your fingers off, you know, and it's starting like small building blocks of skills that could eventually uh, lead to them, you know, having a job in a restaurant. So that's the basis. Yeah. So I just got to, it's got the wheels turning in me, but it's too far away for me. I just have to think about like, oh, that's something hopefully I'll have time when I'm in LA next time. Yeah. Six months or so to do something on that. That'll be really interesting. Yeah. I think we got a pressure cooker there and I got <laughs> my house. So be well on your way. Cool. So I want to wrap it up, not because I don't want to keep talking, but because it's a little over an hour now and I don't want to make these too long. And it sounds like you don't yet have anything specific concrete for the workplace, but I want to leave an open invitation. If something there happens or if something happens with the, if the, the farmer's market stuff progresses into something new and there's something to update, I'd love to hear it. Is there anything I didn't think to ask to, to bring up? No, I think we covered everything. All right. Anything to, to say to the listeners before closing up? Well, I just want to brag around my stew today. Oh, yeah. I got carrots. They're the yellow carrots. They're kind of the wrong color. But I got carrots. I got cabbage. Let's see what else I got here. I got broccoli. I got a little bit of potatoes. I'm trying to make stew for one, one person. So it's a little different. I do have avocado. I got these beans. I got an onion. Uh, but ca- yeah, cabbage is kind of one of my favorites. So I'm pretty excited about the cabbage today. And is that all from the farmer's market? Yes. Even the oh, beans. I just got it. That's why I was five minutes late for the call. Just got it. Because, oh man, because yeah, the beans here, I can only get dried from elsewhere, which is, you know, I get it in bulk. But man, it's all fresh there. All and fresh. Avocados. I'm like, oh man. Fresh beans. So good. Fresh potatoes. The avocados, there's so many avocados. There's ones that'll be ripe in five days. There's ones that'll be ripe in three days. There's ones that are ripe today. Like... It's like an avocado heaven. <laughs> we'll never run out. I forgot my little hot pepper. Jalapenos, habaneros? Yeah, but that's all right. Well, the stew that I finished earlier today was pinto beans, potato, spinach, kale. No, kale, no spinach, because the last one was all spinach. Uh, nutritional yeast, onions, nuts, no avocado. <laughs> yeah, I got nuts already. Yeah, avocados in New York, not not likely. But you guys have some probably a little bit of stuff there that we don't have here. Uh, oh yeah, wait, I, I forgot the radish and turnips. Oh, just radishes today. Uh huh. And the watermelon radishes are really good. I'm convinced that I believe that the watermelon radishes, if I get them from the farmers market, and they're really cheap because they grow and they're just like 
the radishes. Who wants yeah. like, oh, I can't wait to have a radish today. <laughs> yeah, not not a big hit. With the but kids. the thing is that on the outside they look like rocks, and on the inside they're bright red and juicy. And if someone was able to pull this off, to put a sign up saying "fresh from Thailand." <laughs> and give it some slightly more exotic name without the word radish in it. I think you could charge like twenty dollars a pound. <laughs> I mean, they're really good. Yeah. Well, cool. I'm glad to hear the bragging about the stew, and I feel like I had a big part in making that happen. So, absolutely, awesome. you are the stew starter. <laughs> well, Brad, thank you very much. Thank you. We'll, uh, we'll uh, talk to you soon. I'll, I'll keep you posted. Talking about vegetables, CSAs, helping people in need from the opioid crisis, habit change, and long-term cooking habits with long-term girlfriends. It's a pretty wholesome ending, and we began wholesome, so I'm glad we ended wholesome. I'm also glad to hear how he stuck with the challenge as far as he could to where he ended happily. The CSAs didn't work out, so he's sticking with the farmer's markets. Listeners who contact me often tell me that they find the podcast inspirational, and I love when they tell me, some of them tell me the passions that they've unearthed. With some frequency, though, people tell me that they haven't changed their behavior. I hope Brad's experience shows you that whatever effort you put in, you'll find it worth it when you take on a challenge. If you aren't acting on what you're hearing here, actually acting, changing your behavior to act on, you know, sharing your values, thinking of something to come up with to act on it, and then acting on it, you're missing out. This ends up being really fun stuff that you can connect with people on. Sure, you'll pollute less, but you'll also enjoy life more. You'll connect more with your community. So if you haven't picked up a challenge, I recommend picking one up. Did you feel inspired too? Then act. Go to joshuaspodak.com slash podcast and click to commit to your personal challenge so you can inspire others. Value means better and worse. And living by your values means living better by your values. You may struggle at first, but it's the hero's journey from living by others' values to living by yours. People say that little things add up. I won't argue against it. But what I find counts is acting. Doing something, anything, starts that mindset shift from the debilitating others should act first or making excuses to the empowering I can make a difference and living by my values improves my life. I don't have to wait for others to act first. I'm looking for leaders, people who will bring what works here in this podcast to communities I haven't reached. Billions of people want to change their behavior. There's room for leadership from personal leadership of just yourself to whatever scale you want. Start by acting and changing yourself. Go to joshuaspodak.com slash podcast and commit to your personal challenge.